please join me in John chapter 19 as we go with Jesus to the cross. And today we're going to consider the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus, the necessity of the crucifixion of Jesus, and the centrality of the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, today, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, I pray that today's the day when you'll give yourself to one who gave himself for you. I'm going to make the point today, I'm going to make the case today that that the death of Jesus on the cross was the most important moment in all of human history. That's quite a claim, isn't it? Now, if you're here in the room, you might say, well, what about the resurrection? Okay, we can put those two together. We can say, okay, the death and resurrection of Jesus, most important events in all of human history. But if you're inclined to debate that, let me ask you, what would you put up next to that? What could possibly be the most important moment in history if it's not that? Because anything else you put next to it seems ridiculous. Somebody might say, well, what about the invention of the iPhone? Well, that seems absurd to mention. Some teenager might say, well, what about the Xbox? When that came along, it changed my life. PlayStation, what about that? Somebody might say this, you know, no, no, no. The most important moment in my, in my existence was when my team won the Super Bowl. We, we kind of act like that, don't we? we? We get excited about these little things as like they're paramount things, and those are ridiculous themes, things. But how about this one? Now, we might get more serious and go, well, what about World War II? In fact, last year, a book came out. I'm sure it's a fine book. Maybe I'll read it sometime. The title of the book, April 1945, listen to the subtitle, The Hinge of History. Again, fascinating book. I actually am very much fascinated by World War II and all that happened there. And I'm so grateful that the Allies won because life would have been very different had Hitler and Germany had won and all that. So I'm very grateful. I would give them this. April 1945, as a lot of things came to pass before uh, VJ Day and all that. I'll give you that was a big time. I would give this subtitle, A Hinge of History. One of many pivotal moments in history. But the hinge of history is the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. In fact, you know, this is how we have historically looked at our calendars. There's BC before Christ, and then there's Christ and his life and death and resurrection. And then there's AD, the year of our Lord. And so all of history for many, many years now defined by Jesus being the hinge. You do know that your Bible hinges on Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates and prophesies the coming of a, a savior, the Messiah. Then in the New Testament, we read of his coming and all the prophecies fulfilled in this one who would die for us. On the cross, Jesus opening the way for us to have eternal life, eternal joy, eternal hope, eternal purpose. And so today, let's go to the cross together. Let's see the centerpiece of our faith, indeed the centerpiece of all history here. I want you to see his death on the cross. And, and along with seeing it, I pray that you'll feel it. That's what I prayed last week going into study for when we talked about his arrest and his, his beating and the crown of thorns. I didn't want to just rehearse the information. Like, Lord, would you help me to feel that? And that's my prayer again today for myself. And I pray it for you that it, this won't be merely information. It's, it's glorious information, but this, this changes you. Even if it's familiar to you, would you ask God, Lord, help me to feel this so that I might respond to this appropriately. So John 19, let's dive in, picking up in verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. 
and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. Let's talk first about the reality of the cross. You remember Jesus had been arrested. The Jewish leaders were envious of him. They wanted him crucified. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over that area, he investigated and interrogated Jesus, found no reason for him to be crucified. But the religious leaders outmaneuvered Pilate. They made the threat. Listen, he claims to be a king of the Jews. And if you don't put him to death, we're going to tell Rome about you. What's Caesar going to do to you if you knew of a rival king and you didn't crucify him? And so they, they kind of pinned in Pontius Pilate. And so he then acquiesced, all right, you can crucify him. We will do that. But when they started quibbling over the sign that was going to be over Jesus' head, Pilate's like, enough of that. You, you pushed me into this. You boxed me in. You cornered me to do this thing. But I'm still in charge here. What I've written, I have written. I'm not changing that. So taking the four Gospels together, what do we know about the reality of the cross? We know something of the time. Approximately Friday around 9 a.m., the crucifixion takes place. And Jesus dies on the cross over a period of six agonizing hours. When I was younger, I heard the information that Jesus died on a cross. I just assumed that was a quick death. Maybe you were the same way. You died on the cross. That, that probably happened fast. I mean, that's such a brutal death. You die in a few minutes, but it doesn't go that way. Jesus died over six agonizing hours. But scholars tell us that's actually quite fast because some crucifixions would last days. You would, you would die over a period of days. If the Romans wanted to be a particularly long suffering, they could make it possible for you to die over a longer period of time. That Jesus died relatively quickly. In six hours, we think about all the bleeding he did before the cross, the crown of thorns, the scourging, and the exhaustion of being in this sham of a trial all night long. Jesus lived six hours on the cross. Well, we're told the place here, verse 17, <clears throat> and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So here's Jesus old carrying his cross, likely carrying the cross beam of the cross. The, the other beam would already be in the ground. He's carrying it. Now, the other gospel writers will tell us that the Romans actually came upon a man named Simon, and he was to help Jesus carry the cross. Jesus, they're collapsing under that weight, bleeding profusely. Simon, we're told his name. He was the one who carried the cross for Jesus up to the place outside of Jerusalem. The name of the place here, Golgotha, and that is a transliteration of that Aramaic word. It shows up in our Greek text of the New Testament, Golgotha. We just brought it over into English. But we just sang a song talking about Calvary as the place. So where did that name come from? Well, that's more of a Latin derivative. And that shows up in the old King James Bible. So just no nothing wrong with that. Just understand when you hear Golgotha, Calvary, that's the same place, that same hill. The place that outside of Jerusalem looked a bit like a human skull. So again, the place of a skull. So we know the relative time on that Friday. We know the place and we know the execution method, how Jesus died. Crucifixion was an agonizing way to execute people. 
a long death, as we've already said. In fact, our word excruciating comes from that word crucifixion. A person would die a horrible, painful death, profusely bleeding, but the ultimate cause of death would be asphyxiation. So reading on crucifixion this week, just from other sources, secular sources, as they just describe historically what was crucifixion like when people were killed this way, listen to this. This, this says this, there were various methods of performing the execution. Usually the condemned man, after being whipped or scourged, dragged the cross being a crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment where the upright shaft was already fixed in the ground. Stripped of his clothing, either then or earlier at his scourging, he was bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbeam or nailed firmly to it through his wrists, which was the case for Jesus. Nails. The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made fast to it about 9 to 12 feet from the ground. Next, the feet were tightly bound or nailed, in Jesus' case, nailed, to the upright shaft. A ledge inserted about halfway up the upright shaft gave some support to the body. Over the criminal's head was placed a notice stating his name and his crime. Death ultimately occurred through a combination of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation as the, blood, as the body strained under its own weight. It could be hastened by shattering the legs with an iron club, which prevented them from supporting the body's weight and made inhalation more difficult, accelerating both asphyxiation and shock. Crucifixion was most frequently used to punish political or religious agitators, pirates, slaves, or those who had no civil rights. In 519 BC, Darius I, king of Persia, crucified 3,000 political opponents in Babylon. In 88 BC, Alexander, the Judean king and high priest, crucified 800 Pharisaic opponents. And then this secular source mentions that around AD 32, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified there by the Romans. Well, we know something of the executioners here as well. If we go back into our text, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So you remember these Roman soldiers, they'd already mocked Jesus. They'd already put that crown of thorns on his head. They'd put that purple robe on him. They had beaten him severely with that scourging, that flogging, but they continued to mock him. Luke tells us they mock him in Luke 23. They tried to get him to drink something early on. He's eventually going to take a drink for them, but early on they offer him a drink. He rejects it, and they gamble for his clothes, as we're going to see. Even that fulfills Scripture. The mocking continues. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they mock Jesus. Matthew tells us that in Matthew 27. People just walking by the cross, they're mocking him. Can, can you imagine that? Can you feel that? Jesus being crucified for us, and people are just continuing to mock at him. Here's, here's the content of much of the mocking. They would say, listen, you saved others. Save yourself. Some of the mocking was this way, we're told in the scriptures. Hey, if you just come down from there, we'll believe in you. Making a mockery of the idea that he's a savior. What kind of savior is this? But they didn't understand that is the type of savior he was. Not to save himself, 
but to sacrifice himself, to give himself in payment for other people's sin. In fact, on the cross, Jesus saves a man. This takes us to those other prisoners being crucified. Listen to what we see in verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him were two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Notice Jesus is not the only one being crucified that day. All the gospel writers tell us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they say there were two others being crucified. And we're told by Matthew and Mark that these two other criminals being crucified with Jesus in the middle, initially they were both cursing and mocking Jesus. They were like many of the others. But Luke tells us there was a point that came where one of these criminals starts to believe in Jesus as Savior. That's amazing, isn't it? Not, not at the resurrection, we'd understand that better. You see him alive again. But for one of them to believe in Jesus from a cross next to Jesus, that is amazing. This is how Luke records that scene. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. How did that happen? How did a man dying next to Jesus on a cross before the resurrection put his faith in Jesus to where Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise? How did that happen? Do you see the hand of God in that? God had to reveal that to that man. There's no way he came up with that on his own. It reminds me of the apostle Paul. Remember before he was the apostle Paul, he was the persecutor Paul on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, not up to any good, not on his way to conversion. There Jesus intercepts him, reveals himself to him, saves Paul's life. And how did that happen? He wasn't on his way to becoming saved. Listen, it's the grace of God that God would enable them, show himself to them that they would believe. And your story is no less miraculous if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It might seem more natural in your case. You think through the logic of it. Yeah, I recognize my sin. I understood the gospel and I believe in Jesus. But, but there was a time in life when you didn't. I think about my own story. I would hear the gospel almost every Sunday growing up and uh, didn't care, didn't believe, went through some religious motions, but didn't impact me, did not feel any sorrow over my sin, didn't care, didn't care until all of a sudden, oh, I care. Now I see my sin, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'll, I'll go to hell if I don't have Jesus the Savior. I went from not caring to caring. What happened? This is the grace of God. Your story's the same way. You didn't care, you didn't care. And all of a sudden, you're alarmed and you know that you need Jesus and your life is now forever different. You've been born again. This is the grace of God. It's amazing and so fun to see it in that thief on the cross. I hope you've had that same experience where you've seen now your need, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is good news for you. If a thief on a cross next to Jesus being executed justly for his crimes could be saved that day simply by believing in Jesus, that can happen to you today. So any excuse you have where you think, I've done too many bad things. God couldn't possibly save me. This is for people who've lived better lives than mine. No, not true. This was a thief on a cross who was saved. Here's a reminder. It's not by your works. What work did this man on a cross next to Jesus do to earn heaven? Nothing. There's nothing he could do. He asked Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That was him expressing faith in Jesus, that Jesus has a kingdom, that he's the savior. And Jesus, you'll be with me today in paradise. So there's no work you can do. It's not, it's not 
playing halves with Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you die on the cross, and then through my good life, I'll earn half of it. That's not what happens here. Nothing to commend ourselves before God. This thief just believed and was saved. In fact, it's what the scripture says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Or Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, let's dive back into John's account now. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So here's Jesus also thinking of others, sees his mother, sees John who's writing this gospel and says, look, you take care of mom. I'm sure his brothers had a role in this as well, but here he's looking out for Mary. You take care of her. But then the moment of Jesus' death is recorded here, and I want you to hear it. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I don't want us to rush past that. Maybe much of your life you've heard that Jesus died on a cross. And he did. Quite literally. Jesus who left heaven, took on flesh and blood in the womb of Mary, was born there in that manger, lived a perfect sinless life. All to go to a cross to give his life for us. And we just read about it where Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit here. John goes on to give proof that he died there. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. We've just been talking about the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus. And here we see him giving his life. He died for us. But I want us to talk next about the necessity of the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the reality of it. But let's talk about the necessity of it. John continues, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So let's talk about the necessity of the cross. The cross fulfills many prophecies that God had given. Many promises of the old covenant are now fulfilled. Jesus had to be crucified because God promised that he would be. John repeatedly uses phrases like this, to fulfill scripture, this happened. That the scriptures might be fulfilled, this happened. Or simply, the scripture says, so many prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus's death. 
We already saw this one. When the soldiers gambled, cast lots for the clothing of Jesus, that fulfilled Psalm 22, verse 18. That was told centuries in advance, they're going to gamble for the clothes of the Messiah. His bones not being broken. The fact that these two criminals had their legs broken to hasten their deaths. Jesus was already dead. That fulfills Psalm 34, 20. But what about prophecies in the Old Testament that teach that somebody's going to die for our sins? Are there prophecies like that? Are there any prophecies that tell us that somebody's going to be pierced for us? Absolutely. Notably, we look at Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to this. 700 years before Jesus was crucified, we read of his crucifixion here in Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Listen. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah says, one's coming. He's going to die for you. He's going to take your sins upon him. He's going to be pierced for you. In fact, we can think about other prophecies. The entire Old Testament animal sacrificial system, does that not point to Jesus? That shedding of blood of thousands and thousands of animals through the years, pointing that a, a perfect sacrifice is going to come. We would recognize it. Or how about here, the Passover lamb. Remember, when in the exodus from Egypt, they were told to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And if they would do that, the death angel would pass over. They wouldn't experience the judgment of the Egyptians. And here's Jesus at the time of the Passover, dying, just as John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus fulfilling even the Passover lamb, happening at the time of the Passover to make it unmistakable. But what about this? Do you remember Jesus said, we're told in Matthew's gospel that Jesus cried this from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that. Why did he say that? Was Jesus disillusioned at his crucifixion? Was Jesus not sure about this plan? Is this all confusing to him? Not at all. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm about himself. He's quoting Psalm 22.1. That's the first verse of Psalm 22.1. Now, was Jesus forsaken? Yes, I'm going to read you a quote about that in a moment. But he understood that. This is exactly why he came. He knew how this would go. In fact, this is interesting. Psalm 22, 1 starts that way. But when you get to Psalm twenty-two sixteen, listen to this. Jesus was quoting this. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus has that psalm on his mind. He's quoting that psalm there. Psalm 22, verse 27, it has this in it. It's a, it breaks into praise. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. He's declaring truth about himself from the cross. How wonderful is this? But he was forsaken. That psalm was correct about him. He was forsaken. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about this. And it's a lengthy quote, so hang with me with this. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, I've heard sermons about the nails and the thorns. Granted, the physical agony of crucifixion is a ghastly thing. 
But thousands of people have died on crosses, and others have had even more painful, excruciating deaths than that. But only one received the full measure of the curse of God while on a cross. Because of that, I wonder whether Jesus was even aware of the nails and thorns. He was overwhelmed by the outer darkness. On the cross, he was in hell, totally bereft of the grace and the presence of God, utterly separated from all blessedness of the Father. He became a curse for us so that we one day will be able to see the face of God. God turned his back on his son so that the light of his countenance will fall on us. It's no wonder Jesus screamed from the depths of his soul. Finally, Jesus said, it is finished. What is finished? His life? The pain of the nails? No. The lights had come back on. God's countenance had turned back. So Jesus could say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Sproul continues this way. The hard reality is this. If Jesus, had, if Jesus was not forsaken on the cross, we're still in our sins. We have no redemption, no salvation. The whole point of the cross was for Jesus to bear our sins and to bear the sanctions of the covenant. In order to do that, he had to become forsaken. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will and endured the cross that we, his people, might experience ultimate blessedness. Here's the point we're making. Here's the reality of the cross. But there's the necessity of this. This was foretold. And it doesn't, it, doesn't it comfort you when you think about Jesus dying on the cross? This indeed was not God's plan failing. This was exactly as God planned. Down to the clothes being gambled over. Though there was down to his bones not being broken. Down to the piercing of his hands and feet. God told that all in advance. This is God's plan succeeding. Here's why it's also necessary, because God's keeping his promise at the cross, but it's necessary for your salvation that Jesus died on a cross. It was necessary to provide atonement for your sins, to reconcile you to God. Jesus indeed said, it is finished. The plan was completed. The mission was accomplished. Now there is a way of salvation for sinful human beings like us if we believe in this one who came for us. So why was the death of Jesus necessary? Why, why couldn't God do some other way? This was God satisfying his righteousness and his justice. God in his holiness cannot just overlook sin. He has to punish it, has to give it the full sentence of death. But he's also a God of great love and he satisfied his justice while loving us. He provided a substitute. Understand, when Jesus died on the cross, that was a substitutionary death. Should have been you on the cross. Should have been me on the cross. Should have been us going to hell forever because of our sin. But Jesus, a righteous, sinless one, came to give his blood for us. Jesus died in your place. It was a necessity that that happened, that you would have a way to heaven. So through the cross, there's a way to be forgiven. Through the cross of Jesus, a way to be reconciled, a way to be adopted into the family of God, a way to be with God forever because of that cross. This week, just thinking about how human beings have always wanted to get someplace and will do almost anything to get where they want to go. I thought about how in our human history in the past, when people wanted to cross great waters, human beings finally developed ships so they could go across great oceans. That's amazing what they were able to develop many, many, many years ago. More recently, when people wanted to get to places even faster, they developed, developed airplanes. It's amazing how far you can go in one day traveling on a jet. Amazing what human beings have done. But then you think about before that, though, roads. And people wanted to get places where they developed roads. But more impressive, when they came upon water, maybe a river, like, we got to get over that thing. 
And uh, we, we got to find a way to get over there. So they develop bridges. Can you imagine? And some of these modern bridges that we go over, the engineering that goes into something like that, quite amazing. But even more amazing than the bridges to me is the tunnels. And so I just started reading about some tunnels and all that human beings have done, the ingenuity to do that. And I read about one historically in Massachusetts many, many years ago when they wanted to go through four and a half miles of rock to get through to the other side. They, they estimated it was going to take three years to get through that rock. It ended up taking 21 years to get through that rock because human beings thought, we got to get to the other side of this. Sometimes it's just convenience. It just takes too long to go around it. We're, we're going to go through it. I didn't research that any further, but usually when there's a project like that, you have millions of dollars and you have a loss of life. Usually many people die, especially years ago in projects like that. But here, here's the point. Human beings are really good at crossing distances and finding ways through, but no human being could find a way to heaven. Our problem with heaven is not its distance. It's the sin in our hearts. Who's going to solve that? Again, I, I can't just declare, well, I will go to heaven. No, it's God's home. We're not qualified for heaven. We have hearts of stone. Who can penetrate that? Who can rescue us from that? Jesus came, a sinless one, to deal with our sin problem. Nobody else can solve it. You can't solve it. That's why God sent his son to save you. On, in six hours, on a cross, Jesus poured out his blood to cover, atone for your sins if you would believe in him. Listen, it's the blood of Jesus spilled on that cross that can save you. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus had to die for us to give us a way to go to heaven with the Lord, the only way. And then let's close with this. Let's talk about the centrality of the cross. Listen to what John says in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. So the centrality of the cross, the cross needs to be central in your life. If you would go to heaven, if you would be reconciled to God, no longer running from him, then the cross needs to take its central place in your life. John says, I write all this to you. I was an eyewitness of all this so that you too would believe in Jesus and his substitutionary death for you. Have you believed in Jesus? This is how Jesus spoke. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you today believe Jesus? I believe that you died for me. I believe you're the only one who can save me. Would you save me? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is the way. Jesus made the way through spilling his blood for you on the cross. Today, see your need for him. Call on him. There is no other way. Somebody might say, I think I, I could find another way. No, the scripture says in, in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Only Jesus can save you. But then you think about, well, how do I live my life then? Well, it's centered on the cross. You never move past this. This isn't a once a year study to think about the cross. Your whole life now centered on the cross. So you might ask the question, how do I know God loves me? 
Romans 5.8 says, look at the cross. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do I know God will take care of me? Look at the cross. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, how do I live now in light of the cross? Well, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And didn't Jesus say, hey, take up your cross and follow me. And now let's talk about this. What is our message now? People who have been saved through the death of Jesus, his resurrection, what's our message? Our message is the cross. Do you know the message of Christianity is not, hey, just try harder to be good and everything will work out. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not, hey, just love your fellow man. If you just love other people, you're going to make it to heaven all right. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is neither this. Look how good I've made myself. Look at me. That's not the message of Christianity. The cross is the message. The empty tomb is the message. His death and resurrection tells us that we need a savior. Somebody other than us to rescue us. And our faith is in him. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Or what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Which brings us to a decision. We said at the beginning that the death of Jesus on a cross is the hinge of history. Said another way, the death of Jesus Christ is the hinge of eternity. If you would go to heaven to be with God forever, if you would be reconciled to God now, it's going to be through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is pivotal for you. This is the moment. This is, this is the hinge of your destiny. What you do with Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus, you will not perish. You'll have everlasting life. Reject the rescue that God so lovingly offered to you, and you will perish in your sins for all eternity. So don't reject the Savior. Respond to his love today. Trust in Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you. This week, for me, it's been all about the cross. Every week is, but, but this week, knowing I'd be preaching to you, and one of the things I did toward the end of the week was just start to think about some of these wonderful hymns that the church has sung about the cross. And I had several in here. In fact, I had one in here and I struck it and put this one in here. I want you to hear these words as we close. How deep the Father's love for us. What, a, what beautiful words, hear these. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Then this, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Pray with me. 
What an amazing God you are. What an amazing Savior you are. That you would foretell this plan. That you would carry out this plan to save sinners like us. Enemies of yours. That you would come for us and offer us forgiveness, sonship, to be daughters, sons and daughters of yours forever. You're amazing. And Lord, I pray for friends who are hearing this message, whether in the live stream from home or right here in the room, God, would you cause them to see their sin, see you as the Savior, and Lord, would you propel them into faith that they would trust in you, calling on you to save them, adopt them, to, to follow you forever. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.